<laughs> when the zombies come, I'm heading to Sinistil. <laughs> That's it. And if I don't make it, I don't make it. Maybe then I could finally afford a Leica. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap about a couple of end of the world films. I watched Children of Men for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Melancholia. Happy New Year. <laughs> it's the end of the world. Yeah. Happy 2023, friend. Happy 2023 to you, too. Um, well, we wish everyone luck on their resolutions or goals or soft goals or however you want to phrase it. But first of all, friend, I guess not first of all, like third of all, how are you doing? What have you been watching? <laughs> I'm doing well, doing a lot of Christmas shopping um, and planning for the holidays. I'm very excited. Um, I've been watching a few different things. I'm a little behind on my movies just because I have like one or two big projects left for work and that I'm like home free to watch all the movies that I've been not catching up on. Um, and But I finally watched Barry Lyndon, which I was re-listening to our last episode, and that was the movie I wanted to watch next. So I'm glad that I, I made it happen. But they covered Stanley Kubrick on the Blank Check podcast. And Barry Lyndon was one that I hadn't seen um, and I wanted to. So I finally did it. Enjoyed it. It's very Stanley Kubrick. Um, I also watched the new Luca Guadagnino movie, uh, Bones and All. I thought it was very beautiful. I liked that. Did you get a chance to see that? I have not. I thought about it like two or three times, but the sun was setting and uh, I've heard it's a bit disturbing. So really trying to start my day with some coffee and Bones and All. Um, Yeah. And I haven't had the chance to yet. Definitely some very like visceral scenes. I've heard it's like incredibly beautiful and incredibly disturbing. Yeah, that's like a really good way to put it. Sweet. Um, and then I just wrapped up White Lotus season two. Which I know you didn't watch White Lotus season one. Maybe season two will be a, um, a little better. Um, it mostly has to do with just like sex and deceit and like power play. Um, it's very interesting. I really, really liked it. Um, I was like not too sure how they were going to make a second season when the first one seemed so contained. Um, and you know, Mike White is a good writer. So that's how you make a second season. How are you? What have you been up to? I'm good. Whereas you are a couple projects away from being done with your big end of year work haul. We had our last event um, last week. So it's really slowed down for me. So I've been catching up on a lot of 2022 movies um, that I'm assuming we'll talk about on our end of year pod. So I'll save it for then. Um, hopefully this is the second time we're talking to you this month after an end of year recording. Uh, but I watched uh, The Awful Truth, which is that Cary Grant, Irene Dune um, movie. A Criterion Collection has a fun screwball collection this month. So I've been really digging my way through that. Um, also touching on some Christmas movies. I watched the Bishop's wife and the preacher's wife. The first one is the Cary Grant version. And the second one is the Denzel Washington, Whitney Houston cut. Um, I personally like the Denzel and Whitney Houston one a little bit better because I feel like it really just banks on Denzel's charm and gives Whitney Houston any excuse to sing. So always going <laughs> to love that. And then finally, uh, probably like two years <laughs> after having watched Fellowship of the Ring, I've made my way through Return of the King. 
and and it was good. I liked it. I, I had to watch a couple of recap videos really quick to make sure I knew what was going on, but um, made my way through that four and a half hour movie. I saw what everybody meant about the many, many endings, but um, I enjoyed it. I'm glad that I've watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy and am excited to probably rewatch it at some point and also very excited to dive into uh, Rings of Power. So um, made my way through Middle Earth and it was a good time. Incredible. I read the books instead. I went like just in the opposite direction. Oh, see, yeah, the, I went through like a eight year period where I just didn't read a book. I thought like people who played sports didn't read. I don't know why. Um, I really true. needed. I really needed the uh, random video clips of LeBron on the first page of every single book ever. Like, have you see, have you seen <laughs> yeah. that meme? Yeah. Yes. Where he's just always on page one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it just proves your point. So. But as we learned, reading is good. It's not the uh, end of the world if you love reading some books. But you know what oh, is the end of the world? Great transition. The movies we want. Kind of the end of the world. It's like apocalyptic adjacent are these movies, I think. So um, why yeah. don't we talk about the movies we swapped in, why we swapped them? It's so funny you say that because one of my notes later on is like how we both took the phrase end of the world and like which movies we picked and how they're like a little different but the same idea. Um, well, I chose for you, Children of Men. This is the Alfonso Cuaron like thriller action movie, sci-fi movie um, from 2006. And then you chose uh, like a much more like quiet and beautiful um, drama. Sad. Sad. Also like, like an arts film, but also science fiction-y. Um, called Melancholia um, from 2011. Um, and, you know, both of them deal with the world ending in different ways. I think it's a good match, even though the pacing of the movies are very different. It's among one of the more egregious pairings in terms of like tone. Yeah, the tone is really tough. <laughs> did, I did what, watch them back to back. I did too. What order did you watch them in? I watched Melancholia first because it was the one I hadn't seen. So I wanted to make sure if I got sleepy, it wouldn't be for homework. It would be for rewatching. <laughs> That's fair. I uh, I did it the other way around because also, you know, I was like, oh, I'll watch Children of Men first. And yeah. if I had my choice, would have switched it up. But um, to figure out which movie we talk about first, why don't you pick a side of the coin? I'll flip it and then we'll get to talking about these movies. Okay. I choose heads. Heads. So I think you're like two for your last two, maybe three for your last four. I don't know. Still waiting on Joe's results. Um, why don't you Come pick on, which Joe. movie we're talking about? I think we're going to start with Melancholia. I think that's the right move. <laughs> I think so too. Because, yeah, I just, yeah, let's get through it. <laughs> I smile and I smile and I smile. Amanda, you watch Melancholia. I did. I really loved that scene. All right. <laughs> Here's what happens, Zach. The movie starts with an eight-minute montage of slow-moving artistic scenes that we'll later see as scenes in the movie set to classical music. Cut to part one, Justine. Justine is played by Kirsten Dunst, and Michael, played by Alexander Skarsgård, are newlyweds trying to park their wedding limo as they pull up to a grand castle. Here, Justine's sister, Claire, played by Charlotte Gansberg, and her husband, Jack, played by Kiefer Sutherland, announce that the whole party has been waiting on them. Justine apologizes, though she rushes off to the horse stable to say hello to her horse, Abraham, before going inside. 
this will be the first of many instances where she just runs off instead of doing her wedding day duties. On the way into the castle, she asks her brother-in-law what the red star is that she can see. He responds by saying that it's Antares in the constellation Scorpio. Justine and Claire's parents bicker while giving passive-aggressive wedding speeches with her mother all but saying getting married is the worst thing that you could do. It's like not a great tone for a wedding speech. Her boss gives a speech um, requesting a tagline for their advertisement and promoting her to art director, which is not an appropriate place to do work-like behavior. Uh, Throughout the night as the movie goes on, this sense of depression and dread and, well, melancholia sets in for Justine, and she leaves to hide away while her husband is waiting for her to do all the wedding things. Uh, like when she takes a bath instead of cutting her wedding cake and rushes off to look at the stars in Jack's telescope instead of like doing the, the um, flower toss and things like that. Later, Michael shows her a photo of a piece of land that he's purchased for them, saying that she'd be able to sit out here when she's sad and that they'd have a happy life together. What is meant to be a very sweet gesture of support is sort of a final straw for the couple. After the party, they try to have sex. She stops it and instead has sex with her boss's assistant. Um, Part one ends with Michael and Justine calling off their marriage, saying this could have been a lot different. Yes, but Michael, what did you expect? The very end, she notices the red star is no longer there. Part two, Claire. Justine has fallen deeper into a depression and is back at the castle with her sister, nephew, and brother-in-law. They're taking care of her, but she is really, really deep in it. She's not eating. She's not bathing. She's not doing activities like riding her horse, etc. Meanwhile, this planet, Melancholia, is in a direct pattern to pass by Earth, and it's causing Claire a lot of anxiety. Jack is a scientist and is confident that it will pass by the Earth and is actually really interested in watching the planet like all of the time. The bright blue planet gets a little closer each day while Claire becomes more anxious each day that it's not going to pass, it's going to crash into the Earth. Justine's depression becomes a little bit more manageable but has drifted more into nihilism. She even states that the Earth is evil and it's okay that it might be destroyed. There are strange patterns in the weather as a result of the planet getting closer, and soon they lose electricity in their giant house. The big night comes, and the whole family watches the planet get closer, then start to go away again. This brings Claire a huge sense of relief. The next day, Jack is outside with his telescope, then he suddenly walks away and can't be found. Trying to continue to ease her anxiety, Claire looks up at the planet, but notice minutes later that it's actually getting closer. Melancholia is going to hit Earth. She discovers that Jack has committed suicide. She tries to flee with her son, but ultimately decides to sit out with her sister and son as the collision happens. That's kind of the whole movie. That is the whole movie. Good job. Thank you so much. (laughs) Why did you pick this movie? Mainly because this is probably Kirsten Dunn's best dramatic performance, and it's a heavy look at depression and anxiety in the face of uh, a crazy event like the apocalypse. Um, I also just think it's a movie that you and I kind of don't watch very much of, like these very artistic, um, impressionistic takes on life or whatever. Like, and so I think it was like just a fun kind of uh, different world of 
cinema to look into. But uh, with that, what kind of stood out to you when you watched it for the first time? So I was thinking a lot during the movie that part one reminds me a lot of the movie Rachel Getting Married. Um, It's an Anne Hathaway movie. Obviously, there is not the end of the world that's looming over them in this, but it also is a story about sisters. Um, It also deals with a handheld camera. It is also about really fucked up wedding speeches and like family (laughs) dynamics that are really not good. Um, And sort of one sister who is controlling and loved and one sister who is, you know, depressed and the 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 bad kid if you have to Mm -hmm. um and i i thought that was a movie i watched this year for the first time and really liked um and it just really remind i got a lot of those same vibes from the the first part of the movie it's a beautiful wedding by the way like it's a beautiful reception by the way yeah they live it's a castle 18 holes on the golf course (laughs) i didn't know that like i now want to see stars through a telescope on my wedding (laughs) I have like a new thing I need. (laughs) It was such a surprising movie. Like whenever it was like part one, it was just all that one day at the wedding. um, Mm -hmm. That really, uh, I don't know, was surprising and and it kind of captured a certain kind of vibe. But what else stood out to you? I think that, I mean, this is the big thing, right? It it really nails the feeling of depression. Um, There were parts of part one that were really hard for me to watch. Um, luckily I'm in like a much better place than I have been in years past. We have like, we're in a good medication zone right now. Things are good, but I do have like a deep fear of being really depressed on my wedding day and sort of ruining it for not only myself, but everybody else. Um, I texted you while I was watching it that I have also left a big party to take a bath. (laughs) (laughs) There is a sense of I think melancholia and depression is so different than being sad where there is a sense of like, I just need to do kind of what I need to do at this moment and that no one else matters and I can't conjure the emotions to care about how it affects other people. And like, if I need to take a bath, like that's just what needs to happen right now. But I was reading this BBC article um, that's titled, Is Melancholia the Best Movie About Depression? Um, And it really talks about the fact that most films that deal with mental illness are either very overdramatic or exploitive um, at times where this feels like very lived in and very real. And I don't think that that would be possible without the Kirsten Dunst performance, which I will talk about a little later. Yeah, I do think this movie kind of captures the, you know, how we were talking about journalism movies and how journalism movies often make the, they either skip or dramatize like the very unglamorous parts of journalism, like writing and researching and stuff. I do think yeah. this movie really dips into the very uncinematic nature that is like depression where it's like, it is like you can't get out of bed or you want to take a bath or you just want to take a nap in the middle of your wedding. Like these things that you can't really render in a thrilling way on in a movie. It just captures um and and they portray yeah and she has a line um you know we'll later break down the fact that you know kristen dunce's character justine is sort of the depression and claire is the anxiety this two-sided coin of you know this common mental illness but she has a line i think she's talking to her sister or she's talking to her mother on her wedding day and she just says like there's gray yarn or like twine or something like that that's just like holding her down and she like can't get through it 
And like immediately I was like, oh, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. that's like a really good way to put it. And like I, I think that what a lot of these other movies that try to reflect depression and why this movie like doesn't over glamorize these aspects is that again it's not necessarily that like you're sad like sad can be released where depression is just like a blankness it's like a mm -hmm. grayness it's like an emptiness you almost wish you were sad <laughs> or something like that would like conjure a feeling like this is just like the feeling of nothing and it's really scary and the the scene where her sister has to go upstairs and like toss the bouquet for her like that felt really accurate of like someone who is like just existing and is just like you know smiling for the people but is like not there internally and yeah. that is what like a really deep depression can feel like for a lot of people um and i think that both the the writing of it is very good, but you know Chris and Dunst's performance is just so spot on. I, I felt the same way whenever she was talking about the the gray yarn, and that was like a really apt and like heartbreaking depiction of like what it feels like to be depressed or in a depressive episode. It also made me think of um, there's a Mac Miller quote in the Craig Jenkins interview, like before he died, where he was talking about how he's kind of grown and, and worked his way through his depression anxiety and he was like said something to the effect of i really wouldn't want just happiness and i don't want just sadness i just want to be able to like feel things and have good days and bad days and that really speaks to like yeah like when you're depressed it, there's a numbness right that's a common um yeah. attribute that that people cite but yeah what else stood out to you let's let's actually just talk about it right now like i i think that this you know, you you chose it because you thought this was one of her best, if not her best dramatic performance, but she really can make you feel everything that this character is feeling. And I'm not sure if it's because like I've had moments where I can relate to this or or what it was, but just like in the way that she moves her body, in the way that her eyes are like not always fully open and mm -hmm. like the tone of her voice, the inflection in which she says things. Just the way her like body drapes on the bed when she like doesn't want to be up. And like I think a lot about like or I've thought a lot about the the blank stare she has in the bathtub. There's mm -hmm. not even like a thought of like I shouldn't be doing this. It's my wedding day. Like she's like in her veil. <laughs> like, it's just like, well, I guess now I'm sitting in a hot body of water. Mm -hmm. And then, like, that's what's just going on. And there's not even, like, a feeling about it. It just is happening. And there's, like, both a flatness to her performance, but in a good way. Like, a flatness that's needed because you can't be, like, too full of expression if you're going to try to pull this, like, have this come across accurately. Yeah, you can feel the, like the yearning to want to be happy or the yearning to want to be feeling like yeah. when she's talking about to Claire or to anybody else, like she's like, I am happy. I am trying to be happy. I'm not trying to make a scene. But then over the course of the night, as she continues to escape out of the wedding, you can see that it goes from more like just taking a breather or like just trying to get out to like acting out against all those people who want her to be happy and like choosing these kind of self-destructive um, yeah behaviors instead and i think it's a real hard balance to strike like you said it, she does such a good job of like you, you see like the life kind of just seeping out of her body 
um, mm-hmm. throughout the night. And I think that's such a hard thing to hit. The moment where she's talking with Michael about the uh, plot of land that he's purchased, like she's very excited about it. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And these apples and yada, yada. And then the moment he tries to be comforting and say like, you know, on your date, on your bad days, you can sit out here and like, you know, just look at the beautiful land and like, maybe it will help you cheer up. Like she is just so aware of like how much he is going to have to think about her mental illness through the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And she starts to self-sabotage at yeah. that moment. And it all, you know, comes to a head when she instead has sex with the assistant or the new hire, Tim, whomever, his, whatever his title is, <laughs> um, instead of her husband on her actual wedding day. And she does it with same no feeling, but with the purpose of blowing everything up. Like the last thing you want to be is a burden to the people around you, oh, right? God. And the, yes. and then I feel like in that moment, she realizes what the burden is going to be. And it also, in that last uh quote you cited in your plot summary like michael what did you expect um yeah she kind of just sees it all actualize and and sees her future and like granted she could stick with it and like he would learn and they would adjust to each other and stuff like that but it's so hard to see that future whenever you just can't bring yourself up to it i guess yeah absolutely um well, moving out of that, the movie is gorgeous um, visually. That was the other thing that really stood out to me. Um, just the, the contrast of colors and the – I don't love like a, a a handy cam sort of shot. It's not always my favorite, and I adjusted quickly. Um, but I think this movie was benefited from it. It's funny that the only other – like the cinematography I thought of while watching it was Friday Night Lights. <laughs> which is very I thought different. of Rachel getting married, so oh, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is also a handicap. <laughs> Speaking of thoughts, this is a movie that uh, is very thought provoking. Um, really makes you ponder some stuff. So, what have you thought about the most since watching? I'll just like one more note on on Kirsten Dunst before I move on. I, I thought a lot about the trajectory of her career and sort of where she is. And while I think that like she's a very like well celebrated actress, I think if you asked people like do you think that Kirsten Dunst is one of our best actresses? People would be like, yeah, like she's good. She's in movies I like, but they don't necessarily, I don't believe that she gets nearly the credit that she deserves. Um, And something that I mentioned when we did the uh, interview with the vampire episode was that she famously is like very picky about the movies that she makes now. And she really wants to believe in something before working on it. And I love that, like, the industry at least respects her enough to give her that power. I think that that's, like, where anyone who wants to be both an actress and a family person, that's, like, where they want to be, which is great. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, like we talked about in an interview with the vampire, she started so young. She's 40 years old now. Um, And obviously, there's, like, a a period of time where actresses – don't get cast by Hollywood because they're too old to play a young person and too young to play like a quote unquote mom or something. And mm-hmm. there's just like a glut of, of roles, especially since uh, many of those roles are chosen by men, at least uh, hopefully that's decreasing. But um, I do think Kirsten Dunst did have the benefit of one. She worked with a lot of good people early and two, she hooked up with Sofia Coppola very early who like 
in interviews talked about they're they're very protective and mindful of like how they used her, how they portrayed her. Granted, she was also in Spider-Man and was in a comic book movie and she was one of the biggest stars mm-hmm. in Hollywood as a young person. But um, you could see that she was always, after going through the whole tabloid portion of her career, that wasn't too destructive or anything like that. But, you know, just look up a picture of her and Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, you know, she was out <laughs> She was out there. But yeah, she's definitely in a, a different part of her career now. And I feel like this movie came at a, a good crux where it's like, such a departure from like bring it on or spider-man or you mm-hmm. know uh what's the movie you love uh elizabeth town elizabeth town and really showed that like she can not only be this ingenue but be this very serious actor and take on this weighty roles um it was such a crazy choice but like it, it i think it worked out very well for her and both like um her own autonomy for her career and also just the perception of her as a performer yeah she rolls. I'm, she roll. I'm excited that, you know, hopefully she'll, after being in Power of the Dog last year, maybe she will be in more things moving forward. I love that. I watched a lot of interviews for that movie with her, and she's like, I'm not really saying that it's a return to acting, as I never really left. And I was yeah. like, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> yes, Kirsten Dunst rules. I would have loved it if she showed up in No Way Home for no reason, but... um. You know, we can't have all the things that we want. Uh, What else have you thought about the most since watching? I've thought about the fact that if a planet would crash into Earth, that days ahead of time, we would have less oxygen because it would be entering our atmosphere and how absolutely horrifying that is. Um, I've thought a lot about the science of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's like not what I'm supposed to be taking away as it is science fiction, but I'm like, wow, that is so scary. And like all the weather things that happened, I'm like, that's almost like worse. The oxygen really got to me. And then like as the movie progressed, I was like, the oxygen. <laughs> like, throughout the whole movie, I was like, oh no. You being um, predisposed, pre- like predisposed with the oxygen is very funny. It's just, it's just so scary. Um, and then I thought a lot about like our comparing our movies. I, I alluded to this a little bit, but. You know, my movie was End of the World because it was the end of society, and I don't want to spoil it, I guess, but we'll talk about that. Um, And yours was the end of the world because it was the end of the planet Earth. And, like, (laughs) both of those are true, the end of the world. Like, both of those exist, and both of those are the definition of the end of the world. But I thought it was, like, very interesting how distinctly different the take on End of the World was at the same time. When I watched them, I was like, did we miss uh brand this episode no i don't think so just because it, it is like you said two very different takes and like the worlds that we're in are in two different places in their societies that's true but also like the same take the planet with no humans is still the end of the world and with like no way to repopulate at all is yeah. still the end of the world and the end of Earth existing, of course, is also the end it's of the also world. Also the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Like I just thought those were two very interesting like takes on it. Um I also noted that both of our movies have a suicide because they thought of the end of the world is way too overwhelming. And it's just easier to <laughs> to not do that. Yeah. I think about a scenario in which it's like a zombie apocalypse and I'm like, I'm oh, out so quickly. Like literally so quickly. I think 
very often about, you know, the zombie apocalypse thing. I I don't even think I would try. The idea of like being on the run and like the, the like society having crumbled. I'm a posh girl. I don't <laughs> I like I have linen sheets. Like I don't want I'm just going to I'm just going to opt out at that point, I think. Like, my skills <laughs> have least, everything to do with electricity. At least in Melancholia, they still get to live in a castle. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And also, it comes very quickly. It's not like there's a prolonged end-of-world like scenario. That's true. It, it never dips into dystopia, as far as we know. It, actually, it could, yeah. but we just, we're just in upstate New but York But not for this, time. like, one, one rich family. Can you imagine just being a film photographer during the zombie apocalypse? Where would you even put your photo? Where, how would you get your, I don't know how to develop my own film. We would have to learn. Who would teach me? Where am I going to get a, a dark room? I was about to say the internet, but, like. See? Everything. We, we got to travel to Cinestill's headquarters, get all their supplies. <laughs> Amazing. That's my goal. What are uh, some of the first things you looked up about this movie? So I really didn't know much about the director, Lars von Trier. Um, I have seen his movie, The House That Jack Built, with Matt Dillon. And it was fine. I didn't love it. Um, But I think I watched it last year, maybe this year. I think it was last year. Um, But that was about it. Um, But I found out that this movie, Melancholia, is the middle of a set of three movies. Um, unofficially dubbed his Depression Trilogy. First one is called Antichrist, and the second one is called Nymphomaniac. They all have like a lot of A-list actors in them, um, and all movies feature Charlotte Gainsbourg, um, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I also didn't know a lot about him before I uh, watched this film, so uh, learning about the Depression Trilogy and just kind of digging into his other films, it seems like he... Uh, is very eccentric. I think the only other film of his that I would want to watch is Dogville. That's the one with Charlize Theron. Because um, mm-hmm. I know that was like a touted one as well. Yeah, the uh, the inspiration behind this movie came from, you know, being treated for his own depressive episodes. He was in a therapy session when he's, when a therapist told him that depressive people tend to act more calm than others under heavy pressure. Because they've already expected bad things to happen. And we see that a lot in part two where um, Justine is sort of just going through the motions. And it's Claire who is very anxious and overwhelmed with the idea that the world is ending. Um, And I think that that is just a very good point. Yeah, Justine uh, kind of coming out of her like deep depression and she's like indulging in breakfast and like eating the chocolate she's very at peace um with this big blue ball coming to destroy earth uh bearing down on them and i think that's both like it's a little humorous just because you see kirsten dunn's like not a care in the world she's like all right yeah whatever yeah and she's not necessarily happy i think it's that that nihilism where she's yeah nihilistic for sure it has no meaning it's gonna end the earth is bad there's that whole spiel when she's it. talking about like there's no life anywhere else but on Earth, and her yeah. and Claire kind of going back and forth for whatever reason made me think of, uh, or not for whatever reason, but somehow my brain thought of everything everywhere all at once and just like the nihilism mm-hmm. that is addressed in that movie too, where it's like, yeah, there's no point to any of this. There's no like after. There's no whatever. Um, yeah. And 
kind of the uh, acceptance that she finds there. Um, what else did you look up about this movie? Yeah, per usual, I, I wanted to know the reception. Um, this movie was really well received by a lot of film critics, um, almost as like a piece of art pretty immediately. It was not nominated for an Academy Award, um, but it was nominated for a lot of international awards um, since it was a Danish film. And it was uh, filmed in Sweden, so it is a um, an international film. Um, but I also wanted, like, I was reading up on it, and the legacy of this film was almost tainted almost immediately mm-hmm. um, because of a press conference. Then I watched this whole clip. I'm not sure if you had known about this, but it's like following, like, immediately following the premiere of the movie at Cannes and the whole uh cast is up on the stage and it's a press conference um and they're asking them all questions you know classic things and Lars von Trier goes on this like spiel um about how pleased he was to find out that he's a Nazi and like how that makes him feel happy um and it was very confusing uh (laughs) and it doesn't it lasts a long time and he double like quadruples down on it and it's very quiet and you can almost see Kristen Dunst be like I'm not gonna be nominated for (laughs) 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 we are not going to the Oscars oh Um, boy yeah so like this movie sort of got like a weird black cloud around it because of that comment like obviously yeah that's uh, fucking nuts but I think that people like the you know, common folk are are coming back to it, and a lot of but a lot of critics liked it almost immediately. That makes wow! What a fucking choice! It's really odd. I'll throw. I'll like send you the the video. It was sort of this like mixed reception, <laughs> yeah, um, from you know film critics, but also the the general public. That is how you drop your own bag for sure. Jesus. Yeah. Um, there's sort of an entire section about it in the Wikipedia page. Um, and then he was banned from con for seven years. I knew he was banned from can, con, can, can, I think it's can. Yeah. Anyway, he was, Uh, uh, he was banned, um, because you can't joke about Nazis or say that you understand the works of Adolf Hitler. It's not cool. You know? That makes sense. I think that's I think a good, they made the right move. Yeah, great choice by Ken. Um, do you have any other questions about this movie? <laughs> yeah. Um, wh- what would you do if the planet was, you know, hurling toward Earth? Would you go outside and watch it? Like, you know, Claire suggests that they go and sit on the patio and have a glass of wine and just sort of watch it happen. And to which Justine is like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, would you go <laughs> that outside was hilarious, and just- by the way. <laughs> just sort of like wait for the ultimate end or how how would you handle it? Um, I guess it depends on the situation. If I'm like with people, if I'm with my loved ones, if I'm with my partner, if I have kids, um, if it's just present where I'm living by myself, honestly, I might just th- throw on like Endgame or something, watch Lady Bird, <laughs> like throw on the yeah. Before Trilogy and like just get hammered. Or, you know, and just you, wait. <laughs> or just like, take a couple edibles and just hopefully pass out yeah just fall asleep and then maybe never come. i'm absolutely not going outside no i actually don't. the only the only argument to going outside is like 
not death by glass. That's a good point. You know? I think it happens so quickly, you won't even know that you're dying by glass. That's true. They do, like, incinerate. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm watching the Before Trilogy. Yeah, what about you? I think same, that it would really depend on where I am in my life. But let's say, you know, for the sake of conversation, that this is happening in the next two or three days. Um, I think I also just hang out with my cat on my couch, try to make it as easy as possible, and just uh, try not to look. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't think I'd watch it happen. I think that would make me so anxious. In the words of uh, Jin Erso from Rogue One, uh, it's not so bad if you don't look up. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I would go. It'd be like a don't look up situation. Maybe just like have dinner with your friends. No, <laughs> we're not. We're not talking about that movie. A movie, movie that Amanda still, loves. The movie is still bad. I thought <laughs> about it since. It's still bad. Do you have any questions for me or like comments we didn't get to? Um, a couple, like one comment and like a comment slash question. One, I love that. Alexander and, and Stellan Skarsgård are both in this movie and don't play a father and son, but instead yes. play uh, the groom and his best man. I saw someone say on, uh, I think it was a Letterboxd review, saying like, anytime a Skarsgård smiles, I get concerned. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, that's fair. And another thing, I guess it was two comments. Uh, meatloaf, I really respect that being Justine's favorite dish. Meatloaf rules, dude. Meat, meatloaf rocks. Um, and then third, I just wanted to cite some of the things that, uh, Justine does at her wedding that I know is a, uh, symptom of like her depression, but I, if just in the context of it's Kirsten Dunst is like queen shit, um, taking a nap during her wedding, taking a bath during her wedding, sitting just on the top of a big stack of chairs, just vibing. Also great. Um, rearranging people's books on display, a little evil and depraved, but also hilarious, and then my favorite thing is um, when she refuses champagne, but then instead chugs <laughs> Hennessy. I think that's great. Yeah, that was Do you have fun. a favorite uh, Kirsten Dunst at the wedding behavior? It has to be the bath. Yeah. I love the bath. <laughs> it's so good. It's very That's uh, going to really bathtub. stick with me. Yes. <laughs> it was a good bathtub. Very nice. Um, all right. Lastly, would you watch this movie again? I definitely would watch this movie again. Um, I'm not sure if that is a good thing, but I would <laughs> That's absolutely actually really watch surprising. This. I would absolutely watch this movie again. I thought it was like very good. That's good. I'm glad. I, I honestly, when I I when I assigned it, I was worried. Whenever I was watching it, I was like, "Oh, this might not. This is going to be a tough one." And even me personally, I'm like not sure if I'll ever watch this movie again, just because it's so heavy and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It, it is what it is. It looks beautiful. Kirsten Dunn's, uh, Justine's dress at the wedding, beautiful. Looks great. Gorgeous. She looks, you know, yeah. fantastic. I mean, like I said, I, I'm very fortunate to be in a, a better mental space than I have been in the past. And if I'm ever in those spaces, I will not watch this movie um, as it will be way too real. But I feel okay about watching it right now. Well, we love that. <laughs> Ask me again and- in like six weeks to see what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know. We're in the Christmas spirit right now. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we did it. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you want to rewatch it. That uh, is an incredibly uh, pleasant surprise. All right. Well, let's uh, end 
this world and go to another world. Let's go talk about some children of men. This episode of Blind Spotters is absolutely not brought to you by Uncle Frank's Hawaiian Barbecue in Las Vegas. Uncle Frank's opened its doors in 2021 after five years as a food truck known as Island Tucky Fried Chicken, and now they sling some of the most ono Hawaiian food in town. My personal favorite is the spicy Futakaki garlic chicken, but if you want other classics like Lokomoko, Kabi, or barbecue chicken, Uncle Frank's has you covered. Check it out today. Amigo, that's strawberry cough. Get it? When you cough, <laughs> it's like strawberries. Oh, that's that exactly good? what I wanted. That's all I wanted. <laughs> Was that, that a good intro? <laughs> I'm trying. Are you Michael Caine? I'm trying. I have a Jasper. That's the, I'm the closest one. <laughs> that's, yeah, that among other traits. <laughs> you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. Tell me what happened in The Children of Men. All right. Children of Men, 2006 film directed by Alfonso Cuaron, written by so many people. Alfonso so Cuaron, Timothy Sexton, David Arata, Mark Fergus, uh, Hawk Ostby, based on a novel of the same name by P.D. James, but adapted very liberally. This movie takes place in 2027. There have been 18 years of complete human infertility causing the world to kind of fall into chaos, war, and global depression. England is seen as one of the last nations with uh, kind of government control. Um, And because of this, many refugees flee there and the government thusly arrests, imprison, and executes the quote-unquote Fugees. The movie opens with Theo Farron, who is played by Clive Owen, in a coffee shop, ignoring the commotion on TV as it is announced that the youngest person in the world, baby Diego, has died after refusing to sign an autograph. As Theo leaves the coffee shop, it explodes. Shortly after this, uh, Theo goes to work but then leaves. But later on, as he's just walking around, he's kidnapped by the Fishes, an immigrant rights group led by Julian Taylor, played by Julianne Moore, who is Theo's ex-wife. It is revealed that they used to be activists together, but when their son passed away in 2008 amid the flu pandemic, they separated. Julian offers Theo money to get transit papers from his cousin for a refugee named Key, who is played by Claire Hope Ashity, which Theo obtains from his cousin. Theo goes with Julian, Key, and Fish's members Luke, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor and Miriam, played by Pam Ferris, but they are ambushed and Julian is shot and killed. The rest of them escape to a Fisher's safe house, and while there, Key reveals to Theo that she is pregnant and that Julian wanted to deliver Key to the Human Project, who is a scientific group trying to solve the infertility issue. Uh, while at the safe house, Luke is voted as the new leader of the fishes by the rest of the uh, fishes group who has met there. But Theo finds out while eavesdropping that Luke had orchestrated the ambush so he could take leadership from Julian. Theo then convinces Key and Miriam to escape and they hide with his friend Jasper Palmer, who is played iconically by Michael Caine. Jasper helps them get an in with an immigration cop named Sid to go to a refugee camp at Bexhill where they can get aboard a human project ship. Um, but first, the fishes find them, 
The fishes find them, but Theo, Key, and Miriam are able to escape just in time. Unfortunately, Luke then shoots and kills Jasper. Eventually, they make it to Sid and Bexil and are taken to the camp. But on the way there, Key's water breaks and Miriam is taken away to a different part of the camp. With Key and Theo inside, they find a woman who is able to give them a room, and there, Key gives birth to a girl. The next morning, the fishes have broken into camp, and war has broken out into the city between the government and the fishes. Sid returns and intends to turn in Key and Theo uh, in for the bounty on their heads, but then they get away from him. As Theo and Key try to make it to the hidden rowboat, the fishes capture them and uh, take Key away and order Theo's execution. However, right before... Theo gets shot, a firefight breaks out, and Theo gets away to pursue Key. Theo eventually finds Key at an apartment building where the fishes are pinned down by the military. When Theo finally gets the Key and make their way out, the fighting suddenly stops as the soldiers and the fishes realize that Key has a baby and everyone is in awe. They make their way to the boat, but there it is revealed that Theo has been shot. He, cons- he succumbs to his wounds as the ship approaches. You nailed it. Those are all the things that happen in the movie. Yes, they are. Why don't you tell me why you picked this movie? So it was a movie I saw in high school. I was in like a lunchtime movie club with uh, one of my professors who was like, if you want a bunch of movies that will make you think. And I was like, open my world, Mr. Jones. And so I watched this movie over a course of a couple of days at lunch. And I thought about it a lot. I truly think about it kind of all the time. Um, both the message of the movie and the innuendos of the movie, but the visuals as well. I mean, it's so visually stunning. Um, to me, it is like one of the most, it's like the ultimate end of the world movie when I think of the end of the world, even though as we discussed, the end of the physical planet of Earth is also the end of the world. <laughs> um, but just the idea that like there is an infertility and no one had had a baby in 18 years is like an entire, that's an entire generation. Um, and just like that, that idea is so captivating and mm. scary, but you're also, uh, similar to me, you're, a, you're a shots man. So I knew that this would be interesting to you because there's so many good shots in this film. What were some of your first impressions and what stood out to you? This is obvious, but, uh, it's a very athletic film by which I mean, it's like, it's visceral, it's grimy, it's, um, showy in its, uh, cinematography and filmmaking, but when you talk about Alfonso Cuaron, you got to talk about the extended long takes. The Warners in this movie are crazy. Um, there's three in particular that are notable, but the first one, obviously, that I thought of or it really caught my eye was the ambush in the car where Julianne Moore gets shot. Um, it was notable already because it goes from being like your classic uh, outside in from the windshield car shot to like in the car. And they're like playing with the ping pong balls, uh, doing that little stunt. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then once the ambush comes, like it's just you feel like you're in it. And it, I think it's a four minute shot um, altogether. And I was like, oh, like that's when the movie kind of turns on its head. Yeah, and you like kind of realize what kind of film this is going to be. It just feels like you're in this rocket ship of a movie. That is probably one of my favorite shots in all of film. That's also one of, like why I wanted to talk to you about this movie because I really wanted to talk about this scene in particular. Um, I mean, one shots are um increasingly more popular thing, even though they're extremely difficult to pull off in a way that doesn't seem trite. Um, but this one, it almost takes a little while for you to realize 
that it's still one shot. Mm-hmm. And because it's there's so much movement and like you're almost at the POV of so many different characters at the same time. Um, I think a lot about, you know, the the scene where the um after Julianne Moore's been shot and the motorcyclists are coming and then Clive Owen just like opens his car door and hits the two motorcyclists. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, did I did I do that? <laughs> like it's so like athletics a really, really good way to put it. Like there's so much movement um in that scene, which could have been, you know, from outside the car the entire time or, you know, cut between like the different points of view. Like in any other scene, I feel like you would have seen the from the motorcyclist point of view looking into the car at Clive Owen. And in that would have been a very logical shot, but instead you always stay with our characters. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when you talk about Alfonso Coron, obviously like Gravity, Roma, but also Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And like mm-hmm. there's a shot before the ambush scene where um Theo has been kidnapped by the fishes and then Theo goes to talk with Julian and they're walking in like the abandoned train station or whatever. And then the shot spins around and then just keeps leaving Julian in the background. And she's kind of just encased in the big scene of the train station. And I'm like, Oh cool. That was a cool long take. And then very shortly after you get this scene and Alfonso Cuaron really captures like, it's not only just like cinematic with the way he does these long takes. It's very theatrical as well. Like I feel like it adds to the story and it adds to the suspense or the the scene in general, like the standout one is the shot in Bexhill with uh, going through the apartment building and the war zone. Um, that one's about seven and a half minutes. And uh, a fun thing that I read, I, this is probably a famous antidote at this point, but in that scene, fake blood splatters onto the camera and they just keep rolling. And Quaron almost killed the shot because when he, the fake blood hit the camera, he yelled cut, but they couldn't hear him because of all the explosions going on. And I felt like it really, it puts you inside of it in a way that's like, wasn't too video gamey. Cause I feel like wonders can get kind of video gamey sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that it was a happy accident makes it all the better. Yeah, absolutely. That move, that is like a seven and a half minute shot that feels like 35 minutes. Like, yeah, it's so heavy. Um, obviously there's a lot of violence going on, um, and there's just a lot of gunshots and things on that order, but I really felt like with Theo that whole time, and that is the power and the theatrical and cinematic way of using these one shots. You know, sometimes one shots can be used almost as like an embellishment. Mm -hmm. I would say that a very famous one is the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas. It was sort of like... I can fucking do anything I want. Look at me do this one weird shot. Yeah. And like, it's so beautiful because that movie is so over the top. And like, it just adds to like the the grandness of that whole film where this doesn't feel like that at all. Like this almost grounds it. Um, And not that one is better than the other. I love both shots. But I think that this was almost necessary <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to do it this way. I think that's very like another famous one shot um is the boogie nights opener yeah and like I that mean, one for is, real. Is, is again just pta being like i'm gonna do this because i can and like we're gonna sweep through this club but i think the way what i like about quaron's lens and how emmanuel lebeski uh kind of executed it is the one shots don't just like stay with a character but they put the character into frames they put yeah so I think about the the very long shot, the seven and a half minute shot, 
um, we're following Theo, but like we're not just on Theo's face. It, when he takes cover, the camera moves so he's in one third of the frame and you're kind of peeking around the corner or whenever mm-hmm. he's hustling through the tanks, then you're all right, you're right behind him and you're in the thick of it. And then when he takes another piece of cover, the camera kind of stays and you kind of take in that whole painterly scene. More often than not, you get either or you either get shots that show the whole uh, scene and the whole, you know, set and everything, or you're uh, really in on the actor's performance and uh, the way they executed it lets you kind of appreciate both which is really sweet. Yeah. And I think that little things like that is what helped it be less video gamey than it could have. What else stood out to you at first? The production design of this movie is like crazy wild. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's funny cause it's set 20 years into the future from when they made the film, but it's only seven years in the future from, or no, it's only five years in the future from now. Yes. <laughs> and not that we're anywhere close to this kind of world, but also it's not far off. Like it does feel like just present day um, in a non sci-fi disaster world. Like the energy that emanates off the screen, it, everything feels incredibly lived in. Um, the there, There's that like heads up display on the car that shows like impact ahead. And like, we definitely have those things on cars now. And it didn't decide to go like, oh, 20 years in the future, we're going to have like flying this and zooming that. It's like, you know, it's just even grittier and grimier, obviously, because the world of the film, the scene when Theo is kidnapped and he's in like their interrogation room with the fishes, it's in a room Mm -hmm. full of newspapers and all those newspapers had to be created, like all the headlines and everything had to be created of that time. And it's such a small detail that matters so much. Like it could have just been like paper. It could have just been like walls or whatever, but Mm -hmm. they decided to make it with newspapers. And I thought that was so great. Two notes on that. One is that I follow a lot of prop makers on TikTok. (laughs) um, And I think that that's like such an interesting thing where it's like, yes, someone had to make all of those newspapers so that they could paper mache them into a room. But that scene and that image is so memorable that it is worth all of the time that that prop maker and that prop master had to go through. But another thing that I was reading about in this film, and this will unfortunately not be the first nor the last time I bring up Stanley Kubrick. I've really been thinking about him a lot lately. Um, but uh, Alfonso Caron was very inspired by the depiction of London in A Clockwork Orange um, for his depiction of um, of England at the time and sort of this like everything is really battered and messed up and this futuristic like fucked up version of England basically is both reflected in A Clockwork Orange and in The Children of Men and and that was one of his inspirations so that was something that of course I I thought a lot about too. Yeah. I mean, hey, taking inspiration from Stanley Kubrick always a good idea. This is one of the most beautiful ugly movies ever Mm -hmm. like again just speaking to the way they depict london the way they um really just get into the grime of it all uh and yet it's beautiful and not just like the story itself i'm literally talking about like the way it's made everything that's put into it um jasper's house is beautiful you know yeah it looks like a great hang would love to just like Rent that Airbnb out. That's where I changed my mind. That's where I want to be when Melancholia hits the planet. Just 
<laughs> smoking some strawberry cough. Just hanging out in a beautiful green home. But I, I, I think that that's true. Something that I was reading about was sort of his inspiration to make it almost documentary style. Um, and documentaries, you know, even if they're about wars or war-ridden places, can often have a beauty to them within the grime. And I think that this it's so reflected in this movie. Other stuff that stood out really quickly, uh, the birth scene. Uh, I know this movie came first before what this reminded me of, but the birth scene reminded me of Station Eleven. If you've seen that show, yeah. you understand what I'm talking about. And then uh, I really liked in the moment listening to uh, Jasper's spiel about faith versus chance when talking about Theo and Julian's relationship and uh, the death of their son and and how all those things kind of played together. Granted, most dialogue will sound better if Michael Caine is delivering it, but I do <laughs> think it was a particularly uh, kind of interesting philosophical way to look at life, I guess. All right. What have you thought about since you've finished watching the movie? Quaron loves a frame within a frame. There's a lot of moments where uh, the lens kind of puts people inside of like another lens. So the the one that is most stark to me is um, when Theo, Miriam, and Key are at like the abandoned school or whatever, uh, and Miriam and Theo are talking, and and Key is outside. The camera moves to put Key in like a part of the window that is broken and it looks like that key is in like the womb of the window or at, while Theo and uh, Miriam are on the, the side of it. And it's almost like she's just, I don't know, like a womb within a womb or something like that, which I thought was really beautiful. There's other painterly shots and I, and I like these more than like the Warners almost because I just feel like they're so stark in contrast to the like hustle and bustle of the shaky shots and action is um, obviously when key reveals uh, that she is pregnant uh, and she's in the barn. It's like, it's a weird, it's like a weird setup. You're like, why is she with the cows? Why is she talking about cows and cutting off udders? And then uh, before it's revealed that she's pregnant, you see it play out on Theo's face and like the surprise and the shock. And then it cuts to, like a wide shot of her in the barn and it's very like, you know, you could plant like religious imagery onto it where, you know, it's, and, and they even make a joke about that where, where she's like, I, I was a virgin and I got pregnant and she's just messing with him. But I love that shot. Um, and then the birth scene as well, whenever um, the kid is born, the light is just the lone lantern and that kind of puts a little halo in a way uh, around the kid. So it's just those like very intentional shots that um, really have hung with me even more than the feet of the long takes. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of very purposeful um, Catholic references throughout the movie. Um, so I think that everything you're picking up on is very much intended and even down to the fact that the group is called the fishes. I mean, that's like the the fish, the sun right. god. So yeah. it's it's all extremely intentional. I think a lot about, you know, the key in the barn is such a good one. I think the school is such like a quiet moment that is so necessary in the film. I also think a lot about the scene where they go to Jasper's house um, all together and you sort of get the first like side view of her baby bump. And just like the wonder 
that comes with that and the amazement that comes with that and like the miracle that comes with all of that um, is another just like beautiful shot. The other thing that I thought about uh, the most is Clive Owen, like what what happened to him? Because in this year alone, he had Children of Men, Inside Man, and and uh, an uncredited role in the Pink Panther. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he also had Sin City the year before in 2005. He was in The Born Identity. Like he's he was in a lot of stuff, and I felt like he was tabbed as like this either action star or movie star. And then from Children of Men, his like action movie career, I guess, kind of got swallowed up by the whole superhero movie thing, inhaling action movies post two thousand seven. Um, and you know he had you know he had uh, some theater ambitions, so he went to the stage as well. Yeah, I mean Clive Owen, he's a Liverpool fan, so I like him. What were some of the things you looked up about the movie when you were finished? Uh, I wanted to know why all the cats and animals loved Theo. Didn't even think about it. That's brilliant. Like uh, it just was a thing. Like he was always he's always just had an animal, and it was just a, a choice to be like, even though he was this gruff, nihilistic, apathetic, drunk dude, uh, that he was a good guy at heart, and they showed that via animals. Cute. <laughs> Another thing I looked up was uh, something that came up at the very end of the credits, and also um, Jasper says it while. Um, they're at his house is Shanti Shanti Shanti. Um, just wanted to see what that meant. It's a Hindu prayer, um, but it's also the ending to the T.S. Eliot poem, The Wasteland. Um, and I thought uh, Emma Ward from Brightwell Dark Room kind of wove it into her piece kind of beautifully. She said, quote, with the movie's closing Shanti, the entirety of Children of Men becomes a prayer of sorts, that life may grow from nothingness, that peace may emerge from the ruins of conflict, and that hope as fragile as a baby's cry may endure just a while longer. It's a great article uh, on that website. Would recommend reading it, but I thought that kind of was a great little capstone to tie a bow onto this very meaningful film. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting... I hadn't quite made the connection. I don't think I ever like waited to the end of the credits. Um, but T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is a poem that's also full of religious imagery and fertility and um, sterile life and things like that. So a lot of very similar um, themes as well. Yeah, and I think this film, I mean, like like I said, I, I viewed it more as like the action part. I, I appreciated the filmmaking of this movie, but um, if and whenever I revisit this mil- movie, I think I'll, um, and the reason I think it has such staying power is just the, uh, I don't know, philosophical meaning that's baked within it. And it's not ever like preachy in a way. It's not ever kind of hitting you over the head about any of the ideas shared, but um, there's definitely uh, some sacredness that, is in this movie obviously um childbirth and and um pregnancy and all that stuff there is like sacredness around that always but um i think tying that into this very like i said athletic film uh in a really seamless way uh is is a feat it's extraordinarily balanced yeah and i think it's what takes it from just being another flick action flick to like that real stratosphere of this is one of the best films of the 21st century. Um, anything else? I was like, Oh, this must have raked in the awards in Oscar season. Cause um, it was even well-received. 
you know, topped many year-end lists. I think Wesley Morris had it fourth on his list. Rolling Stone in 2017 called it the best sci-fi of, of the 21st century. And so naturally, it didn't win any Oscars. Classic. <laughs> it was nominated three times. It was nominated for Adapted Screenplay, Lost to the Departed. It was nominated for Cinematography, Lost to Pan's Labyrinth. And it was nominated for Editing and Lost to the Departed again. Amanda, you love The Departed. I do love The Departed. I'm glad that The Departed has won Oscars, but I'm sad that this movie has not won Oscars. And that is unfortunately the the two-sided coin of the Oscars. (laughs) Only one person can win. Adapted screenplay, I I kind of get. It's not like the, you know, most beautiful script I get. I mean, but there's so many pockets that are are wonderful. I will never uh, vote against Thelma Schoonmaker when it comes to editing. Um, but it is a little surprising that Quaron didn't get nominated for director and uh, this didn't get nominated for best picture. It's one of those things where, you know, now best picture is 10 and it would have been in for Right, sure. easily. Yeah. Last thing I looked up is uh, whether <laughs> strawberry cough is a real strain. <laughs> That's so funny. I've never even thought to do that. And it is. Uh, Amazing. So, you know, <laughs> good some. job baking that into the reality of the movie as well. do you have any other questions um about the movie things you didn't understand or other things you know you are sort of related to this two both about shots hashtag shots um what is your favorite shot in this film if we're gonna do the one shot it's certainly the car chase it's not only one of my favorite one shots in all of cinema um but it is one of the reasons why i wanted you to watch this movie in the first place I think about that scene a lot um, and I just think it's like so expertly done. I think, you know, we mentioned it a little earlier, but I think my favorite single frame shot um, is key in the barn pregnant. Yeah. It's also, you know, not everything needs to be subtle and like sometimes subtlety is overrated. It's good to cut to such a stark image. The, uh, the car chase scene, uh, that was so stunning when Julianne Moore just gets shot. In the throat. Like, it's I didn't crazy. even know she was in the movie. And then I was like, oh, shit, she's in this movie. And then she's all of a sudden not. She's in, like, 15 to 20 minutes of the movie. Like, she gets killed in the first half an hour and then maybe 40 minutes. And then she's not in, like, the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I, I very audibly, and this is rare, but I audibly was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. I was I watched this movie at like seven in the morning. <laughs> I you texted me, you're like watching Children of Men, and I was like, odd time for that, but go, go off, King. Do what it you was, need to do. <laughs> it was a good injection of caffeine, because Jesus Christ, that was that was nuts. I simply would have fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Last question I had for you was do you have any favorite one shots in general? I know you said that car chase is perhaps one of your like favorite if not your favorite but any other ones you want to uh shout out um stan the man is coming back in the conversation <laughs> um the shining there is a one shot of um the the kid on the big wheel going around the uh overlook hotel for the first time and i'm not sure if you've seen the shining or if you've seen the scene but it's very audible um, because he's going from like carpet to hardwood floor to carpet to hardwood floor. And you're like with him the whole time. And this is like the shot ends when he sees the two twins. And like, that's when that whole scene happens. But it's like, 
very visual as well as being extraordinarily audible and memorable. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like that shot a lot. And um, I I don't know whether I should feel guilty or good about how much I like Baby Driver, but I really like the movie Baby Driver. I don't know what the consensus among the culture is about Baby Driver, but the opening scene is also one shot. And like every other Edgar Wright movie, it's like very in tune and set to the beat of the the song that's playing. And like being a a music person, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, all the things. This is so fun. Um, I'd say the other two are like more distressful. And then this one's just like a more fun one. And then, you know, of course, the Copacabana scene is perfect. Right. Yeah. I I, I think. And then the Boogie Nights one as well. But um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where uh, the consensus is on Baby Driver. That's a tough one. I know. It was uh, Ansel Elgort and then Kevin Spacey were the first names to pop up. I rewatched the scene today and I was like, tough. Damn. Yeah, it's a <laughs> tough one. Uh, <laughs> what are some that stand out to you? I'm uh, going to cite a couple that we've covered in this show. Creed, the one-shot fight um, between right. Adonis and Leo. Fucking stunning. I love that. I watch that all the time on YouTube. Um, another one that I love is uh, the opener for Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite opening shots uh, in, in movies. That's a really good one. Um, with uh, Ryan Gosling playing with his knife and then walking through the carnival. And then just wanted to cite a TV one, um, Battle of the Bastards. I didn't know TV one was were on the board. <laughs> <laughs> I figured whenever you only pick two movie ones and I was like, ooh, I'm going to break the rules here. I'm going to pick no, a TV one. No, I love one. it. Not to, you know, I know True Detective is like the one, but like, I, you know. God, that scene is so good. Following Jon Snow during the, there's too many one shots now in the world, right? Like they're, they're used too much. Like I said, I mean, they're still like on a technical level, hard to achieve, but they're now very, they're just done often um, that I think that now there's a separation between like a good one shot and just like a one shot. Yeah. Like, did you like 1917? Mm, I don't like war movies that much. Oh, that's fair. It was fine. <laughs> but also like Birdman was like such an uh, Oscar yeah. hit because the entire thing is a one shot. Yeah, I didn't really love Birdman. You know what I think? Editing is good. Editing Maybe is great. Maybe have more than one camera. It's going to be all right. That's what films have done forever. That said, you do love rope. I do love rope, but not for the cinematography. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I love That's rope very- for the story. <laughs> Just very fair. Um, do you have any other questions or comments? Just a few commentaries that I thought were interesting and things I think about when I think about this movie. Um, so I I think it's just like a perfect commentary, so accurate of like, what would the government do if the quote unquote miracle baby was from a black poor refugee woman? Mm-hmm. Like, There was a a moment when they're trying to decide what to do with her um, when the fishes and right after Julian has died. And they're basically like, they're going to seal her baby and give it to a posh Londoner. And like, that's exactly what would have happened. Like, that is so apt. Um, And I think that that's just like a very good, like, place to put this miracle baby is in the eyes of like someone that they see as like, quote unquote, garbage, basically. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a whole terroristic war against the refugees happening in England. They literally have them in cages. Yeah. 
Another thing where I think about this movie a lot, which is probably not good for my mental health, <laughs> but I do think about <laughs> this movie a lot. No, it ends on a hopeful note. It does. It does. Like, quite literally. Um, two things that I thought about during um, the early stages of COVID was like this. It's like the second or third scene in this movie is like when there is like literal terrorism happening around him and he's just like trying to get to work. And like the world is quite literally ending and he's like trying to clock in and he's like, I'm really distressed about this, you know, the youngest person on the planet dying. I think I'm going to work from home and like just things like that where it felt so dystopian during parts of the pandemic to be like, well, I'm going to clock in even though literally millions of people are dying. Time to do my little work (laughs) i feel so silly and like looking at it watching it now i'm like i've I've also walked to work while like mayhem is happening (laughs) oh my god that's funny that that was funny um so this is what really got my anxiety going on about the covid and this movie happening in 2027 is when the covid vaccine first came out and there was a lot of not only misinformation, but kind of a lot of confusion about like what are the potential side effects and like what do like how did this get done and yada yada yada. And we just like the American people were not getting a lot of straightforward answers on things. Um and one of the potential side effects that they thought could happen was infertility. And, you know, the internet used it as a joke basically to be like, great, then I will get off birth control right, right. and get my vaccine. <laughs> um, but I was like, this is how it happens. This is how it starts. This is how it starts. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was like so anxious for like a minute. And then as soon as I was able to get my vaccine, I was like, jab me up, yeah. baby. I want to get this vax. Um, but I was like, oh, no. I don't know anything about the COVID vaccine. I am a journalist, not a scientist, nor a doctor. Um, and I don't know the long-term effects, but I know a lot of pregnant people, so I, we might be okay. <laughs> That's all I <laughs> got to go. say about that. It's um, true. And the last thing I kind of wanted to talk to you, I mean, I could literally talk about this movie forever and all of the, the little things that are in it, like the fact that there is an ode to, um, Pink Floyd in it and, right. um, there's just like so many little things in both the, the references and the, the symbolic overtones of like the Holocaust happening and and all of these like little things that are going on and and the fact that another, something that stuck out to me this time was that one of Luke's like final sentences was he was saying like Julian was so wrong this was not the way she wanted it to happen she thought that when the baby came everyone would be peaceful and they would there would be an understanding and then like almost immediately the following scene is like just a small refuge in the war as people are seeing life for the first time, like new life for the first time. And then it just takes like one person to be like, oh no, we're, we're still bombing. And then like Mm -hmm. the war goes right back to it. Um, Like I, I like that those two scenes were uh, back together. My last comment was I was reading this article saying that children of men is actually like the ultimate Christmas story. Oh my God. Um, because it ends with the hope, like the return of hope in the form of a child. <laughs> As you know, the religious tones of Christmas is that this is the birth of Jesus Christ as a baby. 
um, from a woman in a barn in like a time in society when things are very negative and there's a lot of like famine and things like that. Um, and hope is sort of like quite literally reborn in the form of this new baby. And that is literally what happens in this movie also. And so like there was a lot of takes that this is like a Prince of Peace Christmas film. What do you think? This is not a backdoor Christmas movie. Um, (laughs) This is a front door Christmas movie is what the internet's trying to tell you. Well, what's funny is that you bring that up. And uh, I was talking to Jose Young's uh, earlier today because this is one of his favorite movies. Shout out to Jose. Um, He told me to message him when he he did. And he's like, great Christmas movie. And I was like, wait, what? He goes, it came out on Christmas. And I'm like, oh, that makes way more sense. Oh, I didn't even think about that also. Um, Yeah, so those are all my questions. Um, It seems like you liked it, but would you ever watch this movie again? No, not. Yeah, of course. I'm going to fucking watch this movie again. This is a good one. (laughs) I always think the answer is, of course. (laughs) So don't make it sound like it's obvious. Look, man, I didn't think mine was going to be, of course, for Melancholia, but you said yes, so. I'm a sad girl who likes sad movies, so <laughs> what are we going to do? We all have our brands. Um, before we talk about uh, which movie we liked more between the two, uh, we want to talk about a little bit, uh, a few more end of the world movies. Do you have any other favorites? Yeah, so I saw it this year for the first time, but I've I've watched it a couple times already, but I really like 28 Days Later. Um which is a zombie film, but it is about like the end of uh, society, the way Children of Men is about the end of society. Um, I like the 2005 Tom Cruise version of War of the Worlds. I have not seen it in probably 10 years, but I remember liking it a lot when it came out. I've watched it a lot of times. Um, so that's like a fun, you know, alien end of the world type movie. Oh, yeah. And then... And on your end of the actual planet of Earth is destroyed, and thus it is the end of the world. Um, I do love The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a movie I've probably seen 50 plus times. (laughs) I have not watched any of those movies. Wow. Wow. We don't need to like make a pot about it, but Hitchhiker's Guide is legitimately great. Um, I watched it like maybe two years ago again, and I was like, nah, this still rules. Um, You should watch it. It's fun. There's a lot of actors in it. I've been meaning to go through a Steven Spielberg uh, run as well, so maybe I'll watch that War of the Worlds. Shout out to the Fablemans. A good movie. Don't tell me if it's bad. <laughs> it's Steven. I know. And, and Tom. Yeah, Fablemans rips. It's it's up there. It's, you know, we're going to do our top five. Expect to hear more about the Fablemans. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite end of the world movies? I don't know if two of these count, but they came to mind. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one is Armageddon. It's not like really end of the world, but it's like the idea of the end of the world. Another one that I love is Zombieland. Uh, that's my zombie pick. What What is there to say about Zombieland that hasn't already been said? Uh, and it's then a good one. I don't know if this counts. It counts to me. It's more of like dystopia and then start of a new world. But Wally, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Like humans are not on the planet, and so I feel like that's the end of society yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. I'm into so, it. So, there we go. Wally also feel- great. Okay, which movie did you like the most out of the two? I liked Children of Men more. I did too. Nice. <laughs> like Winner! I said, like I said in this pod and in our previous pod, I never intended to rewatch this movie to, to rewatch Melancholia. I mean, I'm gonna, you know, my favorite 
cop out is that I did love Melancholia, <laughs> but I really love Children of Men. The yeah. more I think about the movie, the more I love it. Which movie would Louis love more? This is actually a hard one. I think he would like Melancholia because I think he would be really moved by how beautiful it is. And he would be really touched by the the slowness of depression. I think he relates to that. He would also just love seeing adult Kirsten Dunst. Be like, oh my God, you grew up. <laughs> Never even crossed my mind. You're a genius. Correct. I don't think that he would like children of men. I think he would find it way too aggressive. You think it'd be too violent? Yeah, Louis is a soft boy. It's funny. Every time there's violence in a movie, we're like, he wouldn't like it, even though he's literally a vampire. Yeah, but he doesn't want to be. That's he's a true. soft boy. But like it is, like you said, it's the, the it's a, it's a hopeful story about like life and. That's you know. true. He does like that, but I think he would have a hard time. <laughs> I do. That's just psychoanalyzing a vampire every every month. Um, man, let's do it again next month. What let's are we do it again next month. month. Uh, we're watching some Denzel Washington movies because why not? I am watching Manchurian Candidate for the first time. And Amanda, what are you watching? Oh yeah, brother. I'm watching Training Day for the first time. What do you know about the Manchurian Candidate? Uh, I think it's a courtroom drama and Meryl Streep's in it. One of those two things is true. Sick. What do you know about Training Day? <laughs> um, I know that HBO Max and Netflix keep suggesting it to me. Um, <laughs> I know that Ethan Hawke is in it, right? And yeah. I know it takes place in Los Angeles. That's that is it. also true. I imagine it takes place on a training day for something, some job. There is specifically something that Denzel does in this movie that's like one of the most badass things ever, and I can't wait for you to, do, to see it. There's going to be a straight up Amanda is insane corner during Manchurian Candidate, and I cannot wait. I don't even know what that means. We've had theater corner. We've had like <laughs> martial law or military law corner. <laughs> Amanda learns corner. about the military. <laughs> <laughs> What else is on your watch list besides The Manchurian Candidate? 2022 movies, still trying to make my way through. Um, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, I've watched most of the ones I want to, but um, Devotion and Babylon are two um, that I'll definitely be wanting to watch. Glass Onions comes out um, pretty soon on Netflix um, since I missed that theater run. And then, you know, just, you know, the Christmas classics. Uh, one I haven't watched that I want to is called Remember the Night. It's another Barbara Stanwyck Christmas movie. I love Christmas in Connecticut and I love Barbara Stanwyck. So uh, I'm sure I'll love this movie as well. Uh, what about you? Um, Two movies that are from this year. I haven't seen Avatar. I know it's only been out for like three days, um, but usually I'm very on top of this and I might not be able to get to it till Friday based on my schedule. Um, but I want to see Avatar. I want to see it in theaters. Um, uh, Banshees of Inishirin was a movie I actually missed in theater, but as that is now on HBO Max, so I'm going to see it there. It looks to be getting a lot more attention than I thought it was going to be when I didn't prioritize seeing it in the theaters. Um, and then the promise is the last time I'm going to talk about Stanley Kubrick, but I'm trying to like finish all my movies. So I'm going to try to watch either Dr. Strangelove, which is the top of my list, or Full Metal Jacket, which I've also not seen. Nice. Uh, I'm excited for you to watch Banshees of Inishirin, just so we can talk some more about Colin Farrell and, you know, Avatar. Love some water. I'm excited. As a, as a water sign, I'm excited to see Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, it's about Pisces, right? <laughs> 
It's about Talo Khan and uh, Namor. Quick antidote about seeing Avatar. I'm dumb. One of my friends was like, let's go see Avatar. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then he showed me like the seat maps for the 6 p.m. and the 10 p.m. And 6 p.m. was obviously packed. So I was like, let's go see it at 10 p.m. And then this was on Saturday night. And then I realized that this movie was probably going to start at 1040, which means I was going to be in the theater until probably close to 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. And that the next morning was the World Cup final at 7 a.m. Oh, no. <laughs> So I did not get much sleep, but I saw one amazing spectacle by James Cameron and another amazing spectacle by Leo Messi and Kylian Mbappe um, within the span of 10 hours. Uh, make sure you plan your days, people. Maybe get a planner. That's that's what I'm going to ask for for Christmas. Seems like they were both worth it. I did not watch the soccer game. I was asleep, um, but I watched a lot of the highlights and I understand and appreciate the emotions behind it. I like like a narrative. In sports. Oh, if there's any sport what that has narrative. heavy narrative, it's 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 uh, soccer. Yeah, good for him. Congrats <laughs> to Messi. Good for him. And Argentina. Here we go. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs> you can always find a new episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of the month. Um, we are so excited to do more episodes in 2023. We have a lot of good swaps coming up, starting with this one and then the Denzel Washington swap. Um, Follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod, where we did reach my goal of 100 followers for the year. Feeling good. I do. I do love that that podcast Instagram. It's so fun. Um, You can also find us on Twitter at BlindSpotters. Zach, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib. You can follow me on Hive at Zach Pocklib. <laughs> and you can also follow me on Letterboxd. Where can people find you, Amanda? You can find me on all social medias, including Twitter, Hive, Post, Mastodune, Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> and others at Amanda Luberto. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. We're uh, amped to be with you in the new year. We're going to have so many fun things. We're just a couple of months out from the Oscars. We're going to start our Oscars coverage um, in closer to March as the Oscars is in March. Um, But we'll be talking about it up until then as well. Bye. Remember, the earth is evil.